Welcome back to Unknown Warrior Podcast, uh, episode number two with Pete and Jason, Squeaker Pedal. So as we've gone on our kind of journey of discovery into the story of the Unknown Warrior, we've come across lots of people and lots of personal stories along the way and tangents, I would say, that lead you into various extra bits of detail about the period of history that they're in and kind of the family stories that, and how they all link back into the Unknown Warrior. And today is no exception. Yes, we are delighted to have on the podcast today historian and author Mark Scott. His book, Among the Kings, The Unknown Warrior and Untold Story, is due to be released on the 5th of November by Colourpoint Books. We met Mark quite early on within our own sort of research into the, the story, and little would we know the journey that we would go on in relation to uh, new discoveries, new information, and fascinating new insights into the whole story. It's been a privilege to get to know Mark and to participate and help out a little bit in his research, I think. So we thought it would be very pertinent to bring him on the podcast. So start us off then, Mark. So give us a give us a bit of a praise then about kind of, obviously we're talking about Jimmy Scott and kind of how you kind of came across his whole story and how that kind of started you off on, the, on this whole Unknown Warrior quest. Yeah, well, thank you guys for having me on the podcast. Yeah, what started my, my side of the story really stemmed from a, a trip that I'd planned to take to the Somme way back in spring of 2012. Now, I had no or very little knowledge of the First World War then. And literally the day before I was due to go, I was uh, talking to a relative and she happened to say, oh, you're going to France and Belgium, are you going to your great-grandfather's grave? And I looked at her puzzled, and um, she she said then, oh, Jimmy Scott, he's your great-grandfather. And there have been a lot of twins in my family, and as I was growing up, I was, it's fair to say I was a bit confused about who people were at, at certain times, because um, they all looked the same. Um, but uh, she pointed out in no uncertain terms who Jimmy Scott was, and he was my great-grandfather at, at that point. I had believed he was a great uncle, but I was I was uh, quite violently corrected, um, <laughs> and uh, it was pointed out to me that he had fought at the Somme and that he was buried in Belgium. So, having said that, my aunt went upstairs and came back down with a number of little artifacts that had been returned to Jimmy's wife Jane after he was killed in action in January nineteen seventeen. And there were his his two Boer War medals. He had served um, in the, the South African War in the uh, Royal Irish Fusiliers. So his medals were returned home with the original ribbons still on them, along with a, a box of cigars still in their wrapper and a little diary. So um, I was handed the diary and I opened it up and straight away I saw there's very little written in it actually except for two lists of names. And the first list contained dates and locations, which I then found out were cemetery locations. So I headed off to, to France and Belgium the next day with this in my pocket and went straight to the first cemetery that was mentioned in, in the little book, which is Octuil Cemetery, beside the, the River Ancre at the back of uh, Thiepval Wood, where, of course, the Ulster Division had fought quite famously on the 1st of July, 1916. So I, I went to the cemetery and there was a row of graves and each name basically matched 
the corresponding name that Jimmy Scott had obviously written into the notebook, name of men killed on the night of the 5th in the 6th of May, 1916, before the, 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 the great 1st of July battle. It just struck me that um, back in you know, the, the morning of the 6th of May, 1916, my great-grandfather stood in this exact place and noted the names of his men, probably laid out in the ground before him, and those names corresponded to the, the headstones that I was then looking at. And it was quite a, quite a moment, really. And from that point, I decided to research each of the names that were in the book. I mean, we've been privileged to hold that notebook, actually, and it is incredible as a link back to those times and, and also a very personal thing for you to have that direct connection to to Jimmy Scott as well. And to th- like you said, to think that he held that, you know, in the trenches with with his comrades and noted down their, their names. Yeah, he had served with the 14th Battalion of the Royal Irish Rifles. He was a sergeant in B Company at that time. And uh, th- these were obviously his men, you know. It, and it's, it, it strikes me that if he had of, you know, he, he, he made just a little decision. And, and, you know, you can see how these decisions impact 100 years on. Um, you know, if, if he hadn't have decided just to stop and take a moment and note those names before moving on to his billet or, or wherever he happened to be on his way to, um, we would not be having this conversation today. And it's it's just a simple list of names written with a little pencil on, on the paper of this book. But yet it has had um, a tremendous impact in, in what we will discuss hopefully later in the, in the podcast. Absolutely. So what were the main engagements that Jimmy was involved in? He had served in the Boer War previously. He was an experienced soldier and he was quite old as soldiers go for a First World War um, man. He was uh, 35 years of age. And most of the guys in his, his company and his section, they would have been teenagers, really. They would have been teenage lads, um, just boys. And he, he would have been involved in training them, um, brought them to France, and continued training in France. And their first main engagement was that on the 1st of July, 1916, where the, they were part of the 109th Infantry Brigade deployed at Thiepval Wood. So they quite famously engaged... The, the Germans at that point and actually achieved their objectives that day. There were one of, I think, only two divisions uh, along the whole front that actually did make any ground. Unfortunately, they then had to retire back to their, their start point and received tremendous casualties. So from that point, the battalion had to be rebuilt. Um, they were taken out of the line on the 2nd of July, moved into rear locations and over the next weeks and months, um, they were gradually reinforced by new troops. And the battalion was then built up again, never to its existing strength, but it was built up again into a, a fighting unit and deployed in Belgium, in the Messine sector. And it was there um, on the 22nd of January, just about six months later, uh, 1917, where uh, Jimmy Scott... At that point, he had been promoted to company sergeant major and he was taking over frontline positions from uh, an Enniskillen Fusilier battalion. And during the changeover time, uh, bombardment took place and basically he was killed with a direct hit on the headquarters bunker. 
So he was killed then. His, his body was recovered uh, from the wreckage of the bunker and buried at La Pludouve Cemetery in Belgium. So he is there and he has a grave, which um, is important, especially in the, the, with the subject of the, the podcast. So obviously his death must have had an absolutely devastating impact on his family back home in, in Belfast. Was there any family stories or, or anything that you'd discovered in your research that kind of gave you an insight into, into the impact of his death? He was married. He was, as I said, he was 35 years old um, when the, the First World War broke out. So he was more of a mature man. He was married. He had five children, actually, before the war. Otherwise, again, I wouldn't be here uh, talking. <laughs> so he, he left a widow with five children. Um, she actually then, within a couple of years, had remarried and had six more children to uh, her second husband, who then left her. So she was then left, effectively, at, at, at one point with 11 children on her own. Um, and obviously some of the younger ones were had, had grown up a bit at that time, you know, so they, you know, they were probably helping her look after the, the, the family. So it was a tremendous impact back then with little support, you know, little government support really for someone like her in her predicament. So it was a, yeah, a, a tremendous impact on the family then. And I think that's, that's an important thing to remember as we, as we go on into the podcast, you know, we're going to look sort of analytically at, at documents and uncover new information about the operation that but i think it's really important not to forget the human stories behind the unknown warrior uh, and one of those that i'd like to discuss with you at the moment is one of the names that was listed in in jimmy scott's book which was just written as as carson but actually refers to second lieutenant william john white carson i'd just like to just tell his story a little bit because i think that this really sums up the story of of his death and then how that impacted his father why the unknown warrior specifically was so important to hundreds of thousands of families in relation to their lost loved ones yeah the, the story is heartbreaking not just um as you point out not just because lieutenant carson was killed you know it, it, it is the impact really of his death and the nature of his death and you know the actions subsequent to his death, really, to tell the story. Um, basically, he enlisted in September 1914. But he enlisted as a private, but very quickly then he, he was commissioned and was appointed um, as a second lieutenant to the 14th Royal Irish Rifles. He was a Belfast man. His father, also called William Carson, lived in Belfast and had a, an estate agency company. So young William Carson was involved in that business. He was a second lieutenant in A Company in the 14th Battalion. And on the 1st of July, he went over the top with the company. And from about 10 p.m. that night, was never seen again. He was listed as missing in action. So I, I obtained his file, his officer's file, from the public records at Kew. And in it, there is... Um, a record of correspondence back and forward from his father. And it is heartbreaking and it goes on for years. And basically his father would not accept until the bitter end, if you like, that his son was actually dead. Um, and he hung on to the fact that he had been reported as missing. 
some of the uh, the correspondence it's it's between his father and a department called C two Casualties Branch of the War Office, and you can see how the letters the the official side of the letters, if you like, on the one hand they can be quite cold. They don't commit themselves really to any detail. They can't, I suppose. But then you have Mr. Carson's replies, which are, are far from cold, you know, and are really quite quite from the heart and emotional. And it's it is interesting when you when you see you try to read between the two. But to give the official side their due, that they did follow up every lead that Mr. Carson gave them. And basically what happened was some weeks or probably months after the first of July, Mr. Carson began to receive visits by wounded soldiers who were back home recuperating and had served with his son so that they they called really called to see called to talk to him but two lads arrived along with a captain called Stanley Monard now Captain Monard was one of the two officers that left the battlefield with the remains of the battalion on this the morning of the 2nd of July 1916 it was Captain Monard, who himself was actually wounded, uh, but remained in his command, along with another captain uh, called Hogg. And those two men basically led roughly 100 men from the battalion back across the Onka River um, to their billets. And that was what remained of an almost 1,000 strong battalion. So Captain Monard was probably well qualified um, to answer any questions that Mr Carson would have because he was there throughout the battle. Obviously, his own battle, really. You know, he he couldn't speak for for the, you know, the other nine hundred odd men. But yeah, so Captain Monard he called with Mister Carson along with two lads, um, two privates, um, a chap called Cousins and another lad called Hannah, and they obviously had a conversation, and. I would imagine that the question arose, you know, the elephant in the room, if you like, would have been, is my son alive or dead? And I, I think regardless of, of what was in these lads' minds when they went to Mr. Carson's house, you know, they probably weren't prepared for that question. And even if they were prepared, the answer that came out of their mouth probably was not what was in their head. You know, it's something that... It's a situation I'd been in once and it wasn't nice and you could script it in your mind and you can think about what you're going to say to the, to, to this guy's father uh, and mother for that matter when they're in the house. But actually once you're there and you're confronted with the grief, um, what comes out of your mouth just is not really what you had previously prepared in your mind. So whatever way the conversation went, I think that obviously these lads did not want to tell Mr. Carson that in all probability his son was dead, uh, probably blown to smithereens, and his body will never be recovered. So they they seemed to have hedged round the question, and unfortunately that gave Mr. Carson a shred of hope that his son may still be alive, and he started to follow up all sorts of inquiries. Around the same time, um, articles were appearing in the local press in Belfast. Um, there were more or less rumours, really, of, of these prisoner of war camps where the Germans had had kept 
British prisoners and were using them secretly, if you like, as forced labour. And that's why they weren't being declared as prisoners. Um, Mr Carson again began to write back to the C2 casualties branch um, with snippets of information that he had heard and asked them to follow up on. And again, to give them their dues, they followed up on everything that he came up with and uh, came back with, you know, with an answer in the negative, of course, always. He he mentioned that he'd heard a story. There was a story in the local press that there was one lad who had been serving with the North Irish horse and that he had turned up some two years after it was believed uh, he was killed. The reason being that he had been harboured by uh, a French family. Now, it was pointed out then to him that he went missing in the first days of the war, really, when the Germans had the British troops on the run, if you like, from Mons. That lad was wounded and he was put into a hospital at St. Quentin. Uh, he was called Alexander Kennedy. And no sooner was he admitted to the, the hospital, it was a civilian hospital, than the Germans actually overran it in their advance. Um, it seems that he was spurted away, probably by a nurse, and harboured and kept safe in a house for almost two years. I mean, that's an incredible story in of itself, really, to be honest with you, how he managed to uh, escape, like you say, the, the clutches of the Germans. I think it's, it's an important thing to to think about, really, when we're, we're talking about this is, you know, if you were a family back home and you're receiving letters from your loved one, you know, your correspondent, you're worried about them all the time. There's no direct way to connect or contact them like we have now. So, you know, letters re- are received sporadically and then all of a sudden that correspondence goes dead and you don't hear anything at all and obviously you'll be fearing the worst and then to receive a letter like you say missing in action so you you don't know there's there's no closure at that point even you know it's complete mystery and obviously in this case of of William Carson the, the father of Lieutenant Carson to not know at all he just disappeared his son just completely disappeared and that's it and you know I think one of the one of the most moving lines actually which is mentioned in your book from a letter that he has is when he's replying to the army council and he says that they may uh conclude that that he is dead that my son is dead but such a procedure will perhaps be proper in the opinion of the council but will no way convince me of my son's death nor until the war was over and every prisoner accounted for so he's he's still clinging to this idea that he may still be alive and i you know it kind of I don't know whether that kind of worsens the situation of of grief there in the set the fact there's 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 nothing to there's nothing to sort of you know traditionally what would happen with it with a body and a funeral is that you know you at least it has closure and you know what's happened and there's a body there and you can go and and visit them and and mourn them and it kind of brings everything to a conclusion but for for thousands of families like Lieutenant Carson there was no body there was no conclusion to it there was no end to it they just had no information scraps of information like you say from comrades and that's it I think that would be your natural response wouldn't it as a family that even you know you would wait until you unless you had seen it with your own eyes or you know had received a hundred percent evidence then you would just you know you would just carry on hoping wouldn't you and trying i'm convinced that, that some of those lads whether it was lieutenant monard or private hannah they may have actually known that lieutenant carson was was killed and yeah that's the flip side isn't it is well if you if you knew that would you want to but they just did not keep, want keep that to yourself they didn't want to be the one 
to actually exactly, say it. Yeah. The whole thing dragged on for years, you know, until March 1920, which is actually a relevant year for, for what we'll go on to talk about, uh, you know, just within months of the the Unknown Warrior um, happening um, to sort of, if you like, resolve this, this issue in a way. And correspondence, again, from Mr. Carson back to the War Office, uh, he finally, if you like, accepts and and to some degree uh, his son's death. And he states, and I quote, Sir, referring further to yours of July last, has any information been received directly on or through Mr. McElrath's mission relative to my son? Now, that was a mission set up by a lady called Adelaide Livingstone, who had contacts in France and Belgium, a number of people. They tried to establish as best they could records of, of soldiers who had died or who were missing and then found, you know, and things like that. So he, he had asked um, that this inquiries be made with this mission. So I'll continue. And I quote, it seems strange that the war office never received any information regarding him. The third German trench in which my son was last seen at 10.30 p.m. on the 1st of July 1916 was never out of British hands. Private Hannah of my son's platoon Someone spoke to him at 10.30pm and subsequently received a wound from which he lay where he fell till Sunday afternoon when the British removed him and cleaned up the trench. Hannah asserts my son was undoubtedly taken prisoner. I would gladly know the worst and it's really mistaken kindness by friends to withhold information should the worst have happened. I shall be glad of any information the War Office may have received lately should no tidings be forthcoming, I suppose the Army Council will presume he is dead and will so advise. Poor lad. So that was the final piece of correspondence. And there he intimates that perhaps Private Hannah uh, may not have told him the full story. Mm. And as a result of that, the, the, the matter dragged on in his head, if you like, right up until the middle of 1920. And he never had a body to go to as far as we're aware William Carson's body was was never recovered no all, all the army council would concede which is is I'm sure you've read and you've seen it in many many records was that his death occurred on or since the 1st of July 1916 in either France or Flanders I mean they, they wouldn't even accept that it was a thief file in France which is unbelievable, and I think that that that's one story of thousands, which would be very very similar. Yeah, well, there there are over seventy two thousand names on the Thiepval Memorial alone, and yeah. over fifty thousand on the Menin Gate, and there, there are other memorials all all over France and Belgium um, to the missing. So yeah, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of cases. As we talk about the unknown warrior, the connection that. The British public had to it if William Carson Senior had gone to Westminster Abbey and stood over that grave, potentially, as far as he was concerned, the body that lay under the black Belgian marble slab could have been his son. Yeah, yeah, that's the whole point. Yeah, you know, we yeah. can't say that's. We can't argue it isn't. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, exactly. And if you can find, you know, solace in that, then that is a, you know, a good thing, isn't it? Really. So we've just kind of touched. A little bit just on one story of the the soldiers that were listed within Jimmy Scott's notebook. However, one of the other people that was listed in there 
would provide a gateway into the British forces based in St. Paul and potentially the Unknown Warrior. But we will we will leave that name for... Uh, More on that in a future episode. Yes. Thank you, Mark, for joining us uh, today. And we will be speaking to you again very soon. Okay, thank you.